Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Judges, chapter 15. And we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. Verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etim and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lahai, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out, of his, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramathlehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lahai, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called en Hakor. It is, in, it is at Lahai to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is God's word. Well, before I get uh, started, I just want to say thank you for letting me be here this morning. Uh, like Michael said, a few months ago, I booked my plane ticket in order to be here for my hybrid courses at RTS. Uh, I thought it'd be nice to get here a few days early, sort of take it easy, not be rushed, check out check out OGC and see all my friends and, and get, to, get to hear Jim preach. Uh, I didn't didn't quite turn out that way, but uh, nonetheless, I, I'm certainly more than happy when, when Jim uh, called me Friday morning to, to help out um, as, as needed. So I also want to say that I've known Jim for a while. I've known Michael. I know Skylar and Robert um, and those men and their families. If those men and their families are in any way representative of the rest of the church, then y'all are a special group. I've, I think very highly of those people. And so again, I'm, I'm thankful to be here, but we are going to be in Judges 15, and if you're going to go, uh, if you would go ahead and, and turn there if you haven't already, uh, we're going to be in Judges 15, or we're going to look a lot at Judges 15, uh, but really we're going to look all over Judges 13 to 16, uh, not just this passage, but I chose Judges 15, it's a good snapshot, I think a good snapshot of Samson's life and who he is, uh, but I do want to look at Samson uh, and his life, mainly the first two-thirds of his story. So we're going to look at that together. But I've got to imagine that Samson is among the most misunderstood characters in the Old Testament. Uh, 
I'm not sure what image of Samson you get in your head when I mention his name, but it's probably, you know, some sort of Thor-like figure. If, if, I, if, I, if we were to play a word association game and I say, you know, ask you to, to say the first word that comes in your mind when you think of Samson, most people would probably say strength. And for good reason. It's easy to associate a man that tore open a lion with his bare hands. In chapter 14, we see that in verse 6. It says, although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. And I'm not exactly sure what that last part means. (laughs) Because I have a hard time imagining tearing young goats as easy. I've never done that. Apparently they were doing that just like left and right tearing goats. Yeah, we're just going to tear a couple goats today. It's going to be easy. Uh, Surely it's not any easier than tearing a lion open, but that's what it, it implies. Samson made it look easy nonetheless. It's easy to think a man who, in our passage, killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, who at the end of his life brought a massive building down by pulling two pillars together, together and killing thousands of people. It's easy, it's natural to associate that man with natural strength, especially because Samson's been sort of immortalized in our culture. I mean, if you just look at how many, how much media attention he's gotten. Uh, I I checked out IMDb and I saw at least nine, I counted at least nine, surely there's more, films or short films about Samson, a guy who's only mentioned in four chapters of the Bible. He's covered a lot. Surely there's more than that. In fact, there was one that came out, I think, I think it was this February, um, or 2000, February of 2018. And, um, uh, you know, it got such bad reviews. I just, I wanted to read, I wanted to watch it in preparation for this, not to like prepare my sermon around it, but I just wanted to see what their spin on Samson was. Uh, but it got such bad reviews. I'm, I don't know if y'all are like me, but IMDB ratings, like if it's below like a six, I'm not going to spend my time on it. So it was like a 4.3. So I'm just not going to waste two hours of my life on that thing, maybe one day. But uh, I decided not to watch it. So, but even in that movie, I'm sure his life is portrayed positively. Someone who we ought to look to as a hero. And if he's not a hero, we should look to him. Uh, we should look up to him, at least, you know, em- emulate him in some sort of way. I read an article the other day about how we should be like Samson or have a, a, a similar relationship to, to, to God the way Samson turned to God. And with all due respect to that author, I think they completely missed the point of Judges, especially the Samson narrative. We're not supposed to want to be like Samson. We're supposed to identify with the wickedness and, yes, the weakness of Samson. Samson's not a story of how a great warrior defeated thousands of his enemies that was oppressing his troubled people. The story of Samson is a story of how God began to deliver a wicked people with a weak person. And so that's what I want to look at this morning, the grace and power of God as he's working through the life of Samson for a stubborn Israel. And so because this is a narrative I want to look at the four uh, player, the four main sort of players in the narrative, groups of people or people or characters in this narrative. So these aren't four points that we're going to look at. They're four headings with which to look at Judges chapter 15 and Samson's life as a whole. 
So the first heading, the first group of people I want to look at are the Philistines. And just with any good story, you need to know the setting. And that's really the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines, what we need to know is that they had the power. The Philistines were brutal uh, and wicked. Uh, In the Old Testament, they're constantly nagging the Israelites. They're they're a great uh, barbaric terror for them for many years. And like many nations around them, the way they conquered other, other nations that posed a threat to them was really brutal. A lot of the commentaries highlight uh, the, the horrible mutilation and execution of groups of people that they saw as threats. And not only that, their, their weaponry was highly advanced. So their, their swords and the things they used for fighting were highly advanced for their time. And not only this, they were known for their breweries and wineries in which they used heavily. Uh, in, in the wedding ce- celebrations uh, at that time, we see an example of this in, in Samson's uh, wedding in chapter 14. They were referred to as mistas. I'm not sure if that's exactly, I haven't taken Hebrew yet, if that's how you translate it. But it literally means drinking feast, and it lasts for seven days. And so most of the time at wedding receptions, like I'm ready to go home at 1030. I don't even have a, ta- a category for seven days. That's just insane. And so the Philistines were militarily larger, superior. They were, archi- more, more importantly though, they were architecturally superior. So this may, this may never be a question you've ever thought of, but like when was the first two-story building ever built? Yeah, that question may never popped in your head before. But the Philistines are some of the earliest cultures we see of this architecture developed. They had highly impressive buildings, highly sophisticated bridges, Their pottery was great for their time. Their artwork was really impressive. They were more numerous and they had, they were certainly economically well off. And all of this comes at a time when Israel was none of these things. Israel by these standards was far inferior. Nowhere close to the prosperity and the security or no earthly king to lead them. And so you've got to imagine what it was like for a common Israelite in that time. To look at that. Sort of like the grass is greener on the other side of the ancient Middle East over there. The Philistines were attractive. And here's here's the thing. This is a huge problem for Israel. See, God is set on having for a people for himself. We see that clearly in the Old Testament. And if the Israelites begin to assimilate with the Philistine culture... Eventually, they're going to ignore Yahweh and begin to worship the Philistine gods, eliminating Israel altogether or any other nation they assimilate with. And so this is very dangerous because it's enticing to Israel. So Israel's problem is not that there's an enemy that they're afraid of, that they're tempted to run away from, but there's an enemy that they're tempted to run to. So The Philistines aren't bearing down on them with a sword and they're terrified and they're running. No, 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 no. It's like a moth to the flame kind of deal. They're tempted. They're enticed by what is over there. This has always been the most dangerous thing for Israel. Elimination, not by extermination, but by assimilation. And that's the dilemma that the Philistines pose. So how does Israel do? And that's the second group. That's the second heading I want to look at, the Israelites. 
how do they respond? How do they respond to, to this setting that they find themselves in? Well, chapter 13, verse one says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And what's so insightful about this Uh, the beginning of the Samson narrative is that it's so unlike the previous judges in a huge way. So there's a, there's a cycle in judges and a a few other books in the, in the old Testament, there's a cycle that we can sort of boil down to four words, four R's. Okay. So the first R is rebel. So what would happen is the people like it, it says in, in chapter, in verse one says the people in Israel would uh, begin to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They would rebel. That's the first R. The second R is repent. So often what you would see after that phrase that's repeated often in the Old Testament, so often you would, pretty much every time you would see another phrase right after it that would say, and they cried out to God. So they would repent. This is the second R. And the third R, they would be rescued. God would send a deliverer who would rescue them. And then they would enter into the fourth R, which is rest. They would experience rest for a little bit of time, and then the cycle would just repeat. Rebel, repent, rescue, rest, and it would repeat over and over again. But there's a huge R missing in this passage that's very unlike the other ones. It's probably the most important R, and it's the second R. There's no repentance. So Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord, and if you'll notice in verse one, they don't cry out. There's no crying out. So it's so bad in our passage that in chapter 15, verse 11, it says, then the 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock and said to Samson, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What are you doing? You're kind of messing with this good thing we got going. They're, they're, they're rulers. And so, and then he says, as they did to me, so I've done to them. I'm just paying them back. And, the, and so they bind him, uh, bind him up, take him over to Uh, to the Philistines, assuming that he's going to be killed. So how does Israel respond? Really bad. By completely giving in to Philistine rule. It's gotten so bad they don't even realize what they've done, and they don't even realize there's a problem, so they just give in. And so the question we've got to answer for ourselves is how often do we give in as well? It may not be Israelite nation versus Philistine nation today, but there's still two kingdoms at war. It's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And just as dangerous as assimilation was for Israel for, with the Philistine nations, so is assimilation with the world for New Testament Christians. The battle is referenced often in the New Testament. Phil, uh, Philippi, or excuse me, yeah, Philippians 3 Verse 20 says, our citizenship's in heaven and from it we await our savior. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And 1 John 2 probably most pointedly says, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And so we've got a God that we're all too willing to ignore because of how enticing the world can be. And we've got to deal with a really tough question. You know, are we falling into the same trap that Israel's falling into? And it's not an easy question to answer because at the heart of the problem is ignorance. So like, how do you, 
How do you draw out ignorance in your heart? Because, you know, if I just say, yeah, well, go, you know, just let's read our Bibles and let's pray. A, a great advice, but if, you're, if we're blinded, we're not going to see a need. We're not going to value that thing, so we're just going to go home and forget. And so we've got to begin our, to ask ourselves, what do we do, okay? We've got to ask ourselves a few questions, and, and these aren't specifically the questions. I want to give us just a, a couple questions to help us wrestle, begin to wrestle, with what is our deepest emotional attachment? What is it? Is it the heavenly kingdom or is it the earthly kingdom? And again, this is just scratching the surface. I can't say that enough. Just a few things. Two general questions first. Where do you spend your your time? So something that's convicted me lately has uh, come with the newest operating system for the iPhone. I think it came out in October. Um, so if you've got an iP- iPhone, which is probably all but like two of you, and I think Robert's one of them because I get this stupid green box every time I text him. Um, but if you've got an iPhone, you know what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. There's a new feature uh, that, that you can go in your settings and it's called screen time. And you know, when I'm bringing this up, there's probably a lot of groans because, you know, nobody really is proud of that screen time. Um, But what it does is it breaks down, you know, daily and weekly how much time you spend on your phone, how much time you devote to certain categories like entertainment, internet, uh, reading, whatever. And I've been sort of disgusted by my results lately because I've seen how hard it is to just get below three hours a day. And and before this sermon, it's really, I don't know if this happens to y'all, but on my phone, for some reason, I get an update every Sunday at like 1030 so as I'm preparing this and like about to preach about this application, I get a horrible, all right, uh, report of my week. Um, so I don't know what it's like for you. And it's funny because this question's sort of like, tap. you can't ask people, right, how much time they spend on their phone. It's kind of embarrassing. You don't want to, it's a really invasive question now. And there's a lot of other ways to gauge how you're spending your time, of course. But the smartphone has completely changed the way we live in the last 10 to 12 years. And we've got to begin to wrestle with this, you know, if we haven't already. It's very easy to just lose your track of time and begin to be warped into uh, something that the world's sort of pushing in your face through social media or whatever. So it might seem like a silly question, but I believe it's important. And another question is, what are we spending our money on? When you're deciding your budgets, what's the barometer? You know, is, it, is it prayer? Or is it unconsciously get based on what other people around you are making and what other people around you are spending? And a few other quick questions. What, what drives the decisions you make? Just really generally, what drives the decisions you make? So students... Is it other people or is it what you know your parents are telling you, the truth that your parents and the Bible are teaching? Is it other people? And this goes for everybody. Parents, do you find yourself more concerned with maybe like the popularity of your kids or the fact that they grow up to love the Lord? And do you find yourself more concerned that, you know, your college uh, daughter or son will marry a successful person or someone that truly loves God. And so I could continue. I don't really want to. And again, these are just scratching the surface. But we've got to see how important this is. Is is the world driving the way we spend our money? 
Is it driving the way we spend our time? How we parents, parent our kids, the decisions we make? And, and I gotta say this every time we bring this up, you know, smartphone isn't bad, money's not bad. Success is obviously not bad. But the question is, do you have those things or do those things have you? If earthly prosperity is our motivation for everything, then it's pretty good evidence that we look a little bit more like Israel than we do regenerate Christians. And the questions we, uh, you know, we have to ask is, is the world having its way in us? There's a really famous book called The Screwtape Letters. I'm not sure if, you know, Jim mentions it or not, but uh, it's called The Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a fictional book. If you've never heard about it before, what I'm going to say is kind of weird, but it's two demons talking to each other uh, about how to, you know, entice people to not fall away or to not believe in God, to basically fall away from believing in God. How can we get people to not do that? That's what they're talking about. And there's a really famous passage in this book, and it says, says this. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it's finding his place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle age and the old. So inveterate is their appetite for heaven that our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date. Real worldliness is a work of time. It's sort of a slow, painful elimination by assimilation with the world. Just like the soil in the parable of the soils that gets choked out by the weeds. So in Israel, we see a rebellious people in this one way. This is how they rebel. And in our next character, we see another type of rebellion, a very traditional type of rebellion, and that's Samson. So third, Samson. He falls more clearly uh, with the traditional understanding of what, what rebellion is. And one of the most fascinating things about Samson is how strikingly similar his birth narrative is to the birth narrative of Jesus. So if you go home and read chapter 13, uh, the whole chapter, you know, we just got out of Advent. It'll, it'll read almost like an Advent passage. It's very similar. And there's a few ways that they are similar. So just like just like Jesus, Samson had a miraculous birth. So some angels go to both of their mothers and tell them that they're going to, to have children. Samson's mother was barren. And of course, Jesus' Mary, uh, mother was a virgin. So they were both miraculous. And just like Jesus, Samson was given a special duty to save. And this is incredibly important. Judges 13, chapter 5 says, the angel of God says that Samson will begin to save Israel. Hugely important. That was his duty, Samson's. Begin to save Israel. But that's almost where the similarities end because there's a lot more differences. Samson was supposed to be a deliverer of his people like Jesus, a person that was to have his you know, people's well-being on his mind at all times. Instead, he was an incredibly selfish person, one of the most selfish people in the Bible. Samson was giving, uh, given a special duty by God uh, to, 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 be, to become a Nazarite until his death. So there's three rules that Nazarites have. They can't drink, 
They were to abstain from alcohol. They were never to touch a dead body and they were never allowed to cut their hair. And not only does Samson fall miserably in all three of those things, but you can almost read this story, these four chapters, as how he failed those things. It's like God's trying to tell you something. He messed up. And in chapter 14, Samson decides he wants to marry, so he chooses a Philistine woman, which is against Jewish rule. And when his parents push back, he says, get her for me. No, 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 I don't care what you say. Get her for me if she's right in my eyes. Which is really similar to what Eve said in the Garden of Eden. And if I had to choose a statement that describes Samson best, it's that one right there. Someone who just does what he wants, want, knows what he wants, and, and, and just tries to get it whenever, however he can. Sort of like Veruca Salt and Willy Wonka. You know, he wants it and he wants it now. And lastly, he's motivated by vengeance. Each action against the Philistines is because of something they've done to him. Again, in verse 11, they said, as they did to me, so I'm gonna do to them. You know, they hurt me, I'm gonna hurt, hurt them back. So again, here's a person who's living in open rebellion against God. So maybe you're not someone, you don't identify closely with Israel. Maybe you identify more with Samson. Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, you grew up in the church. And at some point you walked away from your faith and have been living like Samson without concern for God. Maybe you've been far away from God and done things you deeply regret. But whether you look more like Samson, whether you identify with Samson, whether you would identify with Israel, the good news is that for both people, it's the same thing. The good news for both people is the same thing. And that brings us to our final character in the Samson narrative. And that's the one that's sadly most often overlooked. And it's, of course, God. So fourthly and finally, God. If you ever doubt that God can uh, love somebody that's not worthy of his affection, turn to the book of Judges, especially Samson. I mean, there's no one more undeserving. But God goes to great lengths to remind us that there's no one more undeserving than Samson. And there's two reasons he does this. Two reasons. And the first is to highlight God's strength. God highlights Samson's strength to highlight his own strength. So in chapter 15, he's been handed over by his own people. And how does he get out? By his own strength? No. In verse 14, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed on him. This was the source of his victory. The unsolicited mercy and spirit of God that rushed on him in each victory in his life. It wasn't Samson's strength, it was God. But how does Samson react? Instead of giving glory to God, he, he sort of writes this little rhyme. It doesn't rhyme in English, but it rhymes in Hebrew. And it says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. So he still hasn't learned his lesson. And continuing on, we see him pray. And commentators all point out that this is just lip service to God. He's not genuine at all. Because then he cries out to God and he says, are you going to just let me die here? Because I'm really thirsty. I, you know, I slay these, all, all these people. Are you just going to let me die here now? And without hesitation, God springs up a well and he drinks and he's revived. You know, it's silly to make Samson somebody that he's not. Even much has been said about the jawbone. Like I, I've heard a few people say, well, you know, <clears throat> One of the reasons he could do this is because the jawbone was fresh. It wasn't brittle, you know, so it didn't break easily. That's one of the reasons he could slay a thousand men. 
it's still a jawbone. I mean, <laughs> I don't care if it's, you know, sharp or not. I, I don't even know how to, how to wield a jawbone. Like, where do you hold it? And how do you, I couldn't kill one person, much less a thousand. The point isn't try to make Samson somebody isn't or the jawbone what it's not. We're supposed to look at this and say, that's impossible, that's ridiculous. There's no way that could happen. A jawbone? Nobody could do that with a sword, much less a jawbone. And that's the point. Because it's not Samson. It's the spirit that rushed upon him. And Spurgeon put this really well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, uh, used an illustration when he was talking about ministers. But this applies to all people. And I'll just read it. It is said that once upon a time a man exceedingly curious desired to see the sword with which a mighty hero had fought some desperate battles. Casting his eye along the blade, he said, Well, I don't see much in this sword. Nay, said the hero, but you have not examined the arm that wields it. And so when, man, and so when men come to hear a successful minister, they're apt to say, I do not see anything in him. No, but you have not examined the external arm that reaps its harvest with the sword of the Spirit. If you had looked at the jawbone of the donkey in Samson's head, hand, you would have said, what, heaps upon heaps with this? No, bring out some polished blade, bring forth the Damascus steel. No, but God would have all the glory, and therefore, not with the polished steel, but with the jawbone of a donkey, must Samson get the victory. And so with ministers, and so with all people, God usually uses the weakest to do the most good. So God highlights the weakness of Samson to lift up his own power and glory. That's one reason. And secondly, and finally, he highlights the weakness of Samson to point forward to Christ. So Samson is the 12th and final judge in Israel's history. And because he's the last, he's supposed to be the big finisher, like the crescendo. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And at the beginning, he shows a lot of promise because his birth narrative looks really miraculous and spectacular but he fails at every turn and this this doesn't mean that God's given up it just means that there's the real savior hasn't shown up yet Samson's not to provide us with a role model for strength but for us to be captivated by the unmerited love of God and this is good news because I said earlier that whether you identify with Samson or Israel well the truth is really we we all have at some point identify with both At some point, we've all looked like Israel, just going through the motions, you know, perfectly content, just giving in to the world and pursuing the world. And we've all looked like Samson, rebellious, driven by our lust, selfish and proud. And so Samson can't be the hero. He was never meant to be the hero. He was only meant to point forward to another. And and that's Jesus. Jesus is the true Samson. He finished what Samson could only begin. So where Samson would only begin to save his people, Jesus would come to complete the salvation of his people. And like Samson, Jesus' strength would reside not in how he was built, but in the indwelling power of the Spirit. And unlike Samson, Jesus never compromised. He kept the law fully and perfectly. Instead of being controlled by his impulses, Jesus was controlled by God's will. And he, like Samson, was betrayed by his own people, handed over to his enemy, who acted as his friend. And instead, Jesus, instead of acting out in vengeance, like Samson, he prayed for his killers. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know what they've done. 
And unlike Samson, Jesus was not put in chains for his sin, but he was put in chains for ours. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. We don't get Samson. We get, we get somebody who completed it. Somebody who went to the cross in his perfect life and died the death that we should have died. And we get to look at that. Whoever looks at that and places their faith in that, the good news is the, that rebellious people get to repent and are rescued and enter into eternal rest. And the, the cycle's complete with Jesus. The 12th judge ends in sort of despair, like Samson, that's the guy we've been waiting for? No. Judges ends, and it's like, well, where is he? And that's the point. He's not here yet. And then we get to Luke 2, and some angels show up in a field in Bethlehem. I'm sure you all talked about this a couple weeks ago. And they say, today, it's here, finally here. Today, a child is born, a savior of the world. Praise God, we get Jesus and not Samson. When you look at the grace on the cross and what he's done for you, what happens is it begins to be a lot easier to not rebel. When you see that, when you see that we were enemies, and instead of acting out in vengeance like Samson, God, God didn't slay us like Samson. He didn't kill his enemies. He went to the cross. And when you see that rebellion gets to be, you know, something that's not as tempting the world, it begins to change you. So praise the Lord. Jesus is our true hero. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. We, we can only say thank you for the beauty of this story. And again, it's not beautiful because of how you made Samson so glorious and powerful and beautiful, but because of what you've done in him and, ex- and completely shown us your power and your grace and your mercy to deliver, to begin to deliver uh, your people through a weak person. God, if there was no one more humble than Jesus, and if that's not a clear picture of who he is, Lord, show us who he is. Help us continue to see your nature, your goodness, and your mercy to us. And God, I pray that as we sing, as we go, go from here, Lord, that you would help us glorify you and all that we do. I pray that the words would not just be an, an engaging song, but would be the uh, meditation of our heart. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.